Well, um, we're continuing with our Sunday School on Evangelism, though this week and next week we're kind of taking a little, um, it fits right in evangelism, but it's almost like a little sidebar, I guess you'd call it, discussion. And you can see here we're going to talk this week about this term, this idea of worldviews, understanding worldviews. And um, why don't I pray, and then I have a number of introductory uh, comments, and then we'll just jump in. So, Lord, I thank you that when you invade our lives, you give us eternal life, and it begins now. And that life is a transformation of our moral will, but it profoundly is a transformation of how we think, and it's a transformation of our emotions. It's a transformation of our entire being. And um, so I pray this morning as we enter into this stuff that, you know, you'd give me some wisdom, Lord, and helpfulness to try to talk about some heady things, but they're important. And then I pray for my brothers and sisters that their hearts would be receptive, that they, you would enlighten them to the truth. And um, I look forward to where this will take us, and I pray that Certainly the application of our whole time, Lord, is like, how do we be your witnesses in this world? And so that's what I long for out of all of this. Um, so we ask for your presence. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your um, illumination of your word in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, Stephen and J.D. had asked me to um, speak on this or address this for a couple of weeks in evangelism. And and they know I called them this week kind of struggling <laughs> early in the week. I've been struggling for a number of weeks thinking about it because I've taught this quite a bit, to be honest with you, this kind of topic, these kinds of issues for a lot of years. Um, but, you know, you'd almost need a semester or two to unpack all of it. And yet, it's a really, really important conversation in light of evangelism. And so um, I'm just going to take this week and next week to kind of open the door to the discussion. I think there'll be a lot of things that you'll get out of it. But I also know that there'll be um, stuff left hanging. There'll be a statement I'll say, and some of you might go, oh, I wonder where he's going with that, you know? And it's, it's, I just can't unpack it all here, right? So I'm hoping you'll give me some benefit of the doubt that if I took a track, I probably could take you and show you where it leads. And it may not feel that way. I'm, I'm working real hard at trying to button some things up and make some real clear things, but there may be that, okay? Because we're entering into a, a discussion of the life of the mind, Really, and even I hope you heard in my prayer, you know, the Reformation had to shift back to a biblical view when we think of this great Protestant Reformation. And one of them, maybe you're familiar with the term total depravity of man, because there was a subtle shift within the, the Christian worldwide movement. At that time, you would have called it, you know, Roman Catholicism. And it was the idea that your will was corrupted by sin, but not necessarily your mind. And the Reformers go, no, 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 your entire being's been affected by sin, including the way you think. And so we need to have a fundamental transformation of our minds. And I could give you lots of examples and missions and different things where, you know, people come to faith in Christ, but they still sort of believe they should have multiple wives, or they believe they still should be cannibals, or they, they believe that they can't really plant seeds down a row because that's trying to manipulate a God, so they just throw seeds all over the jungle and hope some God will make it grow. And some of these people would say they're Christians, and they are but they haven't had a fundamental transformation how they think. I saw some of your eyes pop open. It's like, yeah, just imagine somebody in some place that has a completely different worldview. The gospel comes to them. They come to faith in Christ. Well, they have to start thinking about life differently. And it's a transformation. It has to change. Well, it's the same thing for us. We live in a world, we swim in water, we think it's normal, but we, live, we swim in waters of a secular world. And so 
when Christ comes in our life, there has to be this ongoing transformation of how we think, even how we think about our world, and that affects the way we think about evangelism. So we're kind of entering into that. And then I would say, if you study biblically, and we don't have time to go through all this, but I know there's a number of the men that we're meeting weekly, and right now we're going through Thessalonians. You realize that when you think about these epistles written in your, in your Bible, it's always a fundamental transformation of a worldview. These people believed in some pagan gods or some, something, and when Christ enters the picture, he begins to completely shape the way they see life. And it literally affects every area of their life, not just how they see God, though that's, that's critical, right? It's not just a dogma about God, but how they treat their wives, how they take, how their employers or employees, uh, how they deal with their finances. Everything is affected. And that's a fundamental change in a, what we're going to get to. You'll see is a worldview. How do you see the world? How do you operate in this world? And our minds need to be transformed. So that's what we're kind of entering into. And then I want you to understand that this is really... What you're dealing with in our society is a clash of worldviews like we've never seen in our history of America. Okay? History of America, you go back. There was a, it's very interesting. I mean, we talked to the college kids last fall about it. You think about the history of mankind. If we could go back 5,000 years. You know, slavery was common in mankind. Massive slavery. Northern Africans enslaved Europeans. Africans enslaved Africans, Chinese enslaved Chinese. It was massive. So when we come to the United States, it's serious, and I'm not making light of it, but it's just a blip on the screen of slavery of the world. The question, the big question is, why in, say, a 150, 200-year period, did slavery come to a stop in the world? Now, I know there's little skirmishes here and there, but overall, around the world, you go anywhere in the world, you go on the streets, and Lawrence say, do you think slavery is right or wrong? Everybody would say it's wrong. Where does that come from? 150-year period. He had thousands of years, and all of a sudden, boop, it changed. And there were two countries that led that charge, Great Britain and the Americas. Why? Christian worldview. The Christian consensus so influenced the world, they said, that's wrong. And I can go in the streets of this city today with non-Christians and say, do you think slavery is right or wrong? And they'll say it's wrong, and guess what? They're borrowing from my worldview. They don't even know it. The Christian worldview, God allowed it to have an influence on the entire world. And it's the same thing today. And what we're seeing, election this last week, all these things, is a clash of worldviews. And that's why we have to think about this. We have to understand this. So, in a sense, we could talk about this idea of evangelism. Increasingly, it's getting more and more cross-cultural. <laughs> right? 30, 40 years ago, there was a Christian consensus. Not everybody were Christians, but we kind of believed a lot of the same things that came from the Christian worldview. That's, that's not here now. That's just not here. And so, we want to see God's world. We want to understand worldviews. So, let's kind of jump in here. I have a number of verses I want to share with you today. And again, there's too much to talk about, but I'm going to do what I can to kind of help us see some things. This idea of eyes to see, you know, it's all over the scripture. He has eyes to see, ears to hear. When we come to faith in Christ, remember when uh, Simon all of a sudden recognizes who Jesus is, and he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden he's looking at the same person, Jesus, and he sees something differently. And, and those of us in this room, I trust most of us, if not all of us, who have come to faith in Christ, all of a sudden we had new eyes to see, right? Eyes to see, and you see things like this. Uh, First Chronicles, when David was gathering all the men around him to, 
you know, for battle and for the, what was going on. There was these men, uh, sons of Iskar, it's interesting. All these different people in the battle were known for their uh, skills in battle and different things they were bringing to the table. The sons of Iskar, look what they brought to the table. Men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. They could look around and they could say, I see something. Do you guys see what's going on? Strategists, they could understand, they could see, they knew the signs of the time. You see this in Paul. We already brought this up when we went through apostles and evangelism. He went to Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, what? As he observed that the city was full of idols. He could look around and he could see something going on. He could see what they were thinking. Remember, we talked about that when he went into the Areopagus. He knew what they were thinking. It wasn't like he was affirming it, but he understood it. Okay? Um, Jesus, do you not say there are still four months and then the har- comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes. You know, pay attention. See. Observe the fields. They are white for harvest. And Jesus talked that way a lot, right? Can't you see? Can't you see? Can't you see? He's not talking about physical sight, right? He's talking about, can you see? Do you get it? So that's what we're talking about. So as we go through a couple of weeks, here's a handful of objectives. It's to help us as God's people grow in and be obedient to God's command and privilege to be salt and light, Christ's witnesses. He gave us the command to go. He gave us command to go to a lost world and bring a message. And so, you know, we have to think about that. So we're going to talk about some terms, definitions. Um, Number two is actually really important, understanding or seeing what we believe. I would call that the mind of Christ. That's a Christian worldview, having the mind of God, seeing the world as God sees it. And that's a transformation. That's a work. Um, And we contrast and understand that to our mission field, if you will, what the world around us believes, the secular mind. You have to know what's going on in the secular mind. What's happening out there? What are they thinking? In fact, just this week, you'll find this really. Here we're talking about worldviews. I just read that. I was just telling J.D. There's these terminologies in this clash of worldviews that, be, that are being pointed at Christianity. So here, let me give you an example that's happened. To me. I don't know if you're aware of this. I hope you are. But I'm a biblical headship guy. I'm not afraid to tell you that. If I open my Bible, I would go from beginning to end, and I would say, God created man to lead his family. But in my culture... The left calls me misogynistic. They label me. I'm a bad guy. Patriarchy, this terrible thing. Because I believe that. But that comes from my worldview. That make sense? There's, so there's books being written today, and there's these targets. Just this week I saw this review. If you believe in heteronormativity, this is written by somebody who says they're a Christian. And do you know what, has anybody ever heard that term? Heteronormativity? couple of you. It means you think heterosexuality is normal. If you believe that, you're a Christian nationalist, which is a bad thing. That's written by a Christian. You're a bad person if you believe heterosexuality is normal. See, it's a sight. It's a name. being. T- so this morning I was thinking, I was reading a review this week. If you talk about Christian worldview, it's a dog whistle for white supremacy. I'm a white supremacist if I believe in Christian worldview. Now, that's the terminologies flying out there. You need to be aware of this because this is being brought into the evangelical world. Okay? And you have to understand, what I want you to understand this morning, it's a clash of worldviews. It's a fundamental difference. When somebody says that, and they lay, you, they're using these names, white supremacy, Christian national, all these terms, to level something at my worldview. That's what they're actually doing. And so we have to be aware of that, and you have to understand what's going on around you so you can communicate with that world 
And at the end, the goal is to communicate the word truth in our world, right? So understand what this person thinks. So when I'm talking to them, I know what they're thinking. And I can learn to communicate that. So the Christian worldview, I would call this, you could, you could use other terms in the scripture. We could look at a lot of verses. We'll look at a few maybe. Um, the mind of Christ, it's thinking thoughts after God. It's, it's well, how does God see the world? I want to know that, right? He reveals that to me. He shows these things to me. So we are to be transformed by changing how we see and live life. These verses of having the mind of Christ, and of course Romans 12, 1, 2, 3, it may be too small for you, you it might be familiar. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, think about this, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. What does he want? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to raise my family? How does he want me to spend money? How does he want me to do business? The will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I have to have a trend. This idea of transformed isn't just because I just trusted Christ. It's an ongoing sense that I need to be transformed. I'm always needing to be challenged about the way I see things, about the way I respond to people, the way I see life. So Christian worldview has to be transformed how we see. And as we recognize the depth of truth given to us, this leads us to see reality. It actually gains security you could say even gain an assurance, you realize what God's done because he's given you a whole new way of looking at life. And actually, it brings us to worship. At the end for us, it's worship. It's like, oh, God took this dumb little guy from someplace in the world, me, northern Michigan, and gives me these eyes to see stuff. And it isn't because I got big IQ or he cranked me up. He just like showed, gave it to you. He gave it to all of us. He's given you eyes to see a world that most people can't see. It's amazing. It should lead you to worship. Like, I can't believe it. Chosen, that he did this. And then it leads us in our own lives to repentance of our own presuppositions. We'll talk about presuppositions. Our own worldview beliefs that we too have absorbed for our surrounding culture. Folks, we come into this church, Bible-believing church, very fundamental in its beliefs, foundational, absolute, awesome, that's why we're here. But we have drank the air of our world. And often we don't even know we did. And I'm not talking just in moral things. I'm talking about the way we think. The moral stuff's pretty simple, right? <laughs> but how about the way you think? How about the way you operate? How about the, the way you think about the world? Important issues. And then the second thing in, our, in these objectives is understanding our mission field, the secular mind. So first of all, the important thing I want to emphasize, we need to know the Christian worldview. We need to be so immersed in what God says and what he says about our world that that becomes the, the, the measuring stick, right, by which we look at other things. Then, with the mind of Christ, we can contrast the prevailing worldviews around us. Makes them stand out. You're going, no, wait a minute. So, over the years, we told the college students this is fall. There's lots of stuff to think about, right? The knowledge of the world is vast, and, and if you were to put it out there, make a big circle of all the knowledge of the world, any one of us would have this little, little, tiny microscopic speck on there that we, we have. So, you're always going to be confronted with new things. But the more that you concentrate and understand a Christian worldview, the more you're going to sit in the classroom or sit in the world and go, there's just something wrong with that. You may not even be able to understand it all. You may not even be able to argue it, but there'll, you'll, there'll be a check in your spirit and you'll say, something's not adding up there. I call it smelling the rat. You develop, you kind of, it's not critical and skeptical. It's kind of like, hmm, just something just doesn't add up with the things I know to be true. 
And the more we do that, the better off we are. We understand it. Um, this helps us understand what others believe. This is, again, understanding the others and why they think the things they do. And this is, I've, I've emphasized this in our, in our Sunday school class. Folks, people that voted this week literally thought they were doing something just and right. And some of us are very, like, we don't think that was right. They actually think that. That's what you've got to understand. They actually do. Now, there's something wrong with that. But they do. And so you have to recognize that. Not accepting it and going, oh, I agree with it. It's just, oh, I get it. I get how they arrived there. And when we do, because it's, people are involved in something that's not true, somewhere in the process that they arrive there, there has to be a hole of something they're believing that is a lie. And that's where we step in. That's why it's important to understand worldviews. This is where, how they get to that conclusion. Okay? And it helps recognize the ideologies around us and how they seek to influence the church. I just put 1 John 1 here. If you read 1 John, 2 John, he's dealing with Gnosticism. Gnosticism, in a sense, you could say, looked like Christianity. And it was brought into the church by people who claimed to be Christians. And John's going, "Uh uh-uh, it's not Christianity. And it's been brought in, and he had to address it. We see it all over the New Testament. So this isn't a new new phenomenon. We don't need to be freaked out by that. You could call, um, like in the 1920s in our country, there was a thing called liberalism. You know, we use that word now, but there was actually a movement in the Protestant church called liberalism, and it came into the church. And you had people like Gresham Machen who wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism, and said, okay, it's not liberal Christianity. It's something different than Christianity. See? We have a thing today called gay Christian. I'm going to go, is there a pedophilic Christian? Is there a rapist Christian? Is there a murderous Christian? There's no such thing. There, it really doesn't, it, it, it's, but it's an ideology, and that sort of stuff can kind of seep into our midst. And again, we don't need to be ooky, spooky, and weird about it, but just like to recognize that these ideologies, we breathe the air, and it's easy to bring them in. It is really easy. So, number one is understanding our worldview, understanding, the second one is understanding the world around us. And then, the third objective then would be, by the time we're done then, the next week, maybe a little bit, we can communicate better what we believe with our friends in the world. That's the goal. These types of discussions help us uh, be better at our witness to an unbelieving world. That witness involves true knowledge, you know, true knowledge of God, ourselves, and our world. Biblical thinking is what it means. The art of communication of this knowledge, I like to call it understanding their language. And I don't mean just their words, but seriously, that's, that would be clear, right? If you went to a completely different culture that had a different language, you know, Russian or whatever, Amharic, or whatever language you come to in the world, you'd have to learn that language and you'd have to try to realize that it's not just an English word to their word. They may not even have a word for our English word and you have to figure out that translation. Well, it's the same sort of thing when we're dealing with a clash of worldviews as people are thinking something very differently than I'm thinking. And I just have to be aware of that. So when I'm talking to them, I'm going, no, this is what they're thinking. Okay? And, and then the spirit-directed life, spirit-filled life, you could call it, which includes the life of the mind. I like this quote by Cornelius Van Til, a reformed thinker on this, thinking God's thoughts after him. I want my thoughts to be what God's thoughts are. That's our goal. I want to think what God thinks, right? Because God's the ultimate reality. He created this world. He said, this is how it works, right? And if you get God's thoughts in your mind, you're going to see stuff as it really is. It's wonderful, really. I just love that. Okay, 
Let's keep moving here then. So I want to work through some definitions real quick with you. Just, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, we already talked about the gospel. Um, this was a PowerPoint I used in other places, so we don't need to do that now, but the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, you know, this, the reality that Jesus came according to the scriptures, the reality what he, who he claimed to be, the reality that he died on a cross, the reality that he came back to life. And now we need to, right, turn from our sin and place our trust on Christ. It's, it's the gospel. Ambassador, you know, we've been called to be ambassadors. And just quickly, if you think about that, it's really kind of a cool thought. Even I think we could use it when we think of our culture. What is an ambassador to another country, right? We're commissioned by another Someone calls us to be an ambassador. We understand the culture and language we're going to. We understand what that other culture believes. Um, gives reasons for this knowledge. We, we, we understand our knowledge. We're trying to bridge this gap. Uh, keep peace wherever possible. There's something about an ambassador. It's trying to keep peace. It's not, you're my enemy and I'm here to take your head off. I'm trying to find a bridge. I'm trying to get to people, Right? We talked about witness. We are to be witnesses, one who testifies to tell what you've seen and heard. Doesn't mean I'm going to figure out all these worldview arguments. I don't want you to get buried on this. For some of you, you'd be going, man, this felt like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant. You know? don't, don't, just relax. Just pick up what you can. You pick up 5%, 10%, 20%. You go, hey, you just gained 10% you didn't have before. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's okay. okay? But it's fundamentally testifying. Some other definitions that are helpful. Worldview, this idea of worldview. Okay, it's a word we use. Actually, one of the ones that's popularly known to have originally used it was a guy by the name of Abraham Kuyper. I see Al smiling, because Al, way back in the day, Calvin College, you were immersed. World and life view, right? It's, it's a, Weltanschauung, yeah, it was a German word. He, he would use that, Weltanschauung. So his point was, is that, the thing I've already expressed to you, there's a lens by which you look at the world. Everything you do, the way you work, the way you spend money, the way you raise a family, all comes out of fundamental things that you believe. Okay? So it's a mental model of reality, a framework of ideas and attitudes about the world. It's a lens by which we view the world. Okay? It's a lens. So you can tell by what people are doing or saying. Fundamentally, you can say, oh, this is their lens. This is why they think the things they think. Because they're looking at the world a certain way. It's a fundamental commitment of the heart. Mind, soul, passions, wills. I wouldn't even say, you know, when Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's like, there's this fundamental affection and movement. It's a commitment of the heart. Uh, This is important. We may hold it consciously or unconsciously. It may be consistent or inconsistent. Hope that doesn't blow you over. The point is, most people don't really think about it. They just kind of go through their day and say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? It's like what I was telling you earlier. Seriously, think about this. If you went in our culture and asked about slavery, everybody in our culture is going to say slavery's wrong. But have they ever even thought about that? They ever thought why it's wrong? Where it comes from? Most people haven't thought that through. But we as Christians have been called to think that through. It's been a great loss in the evangelical world in the last hundred years. We've turned Christianity into this existential leap. Oh, I believe Jesus, warm, fuzzy, that's wonderful. We love to worship and all that sort of stuff. But we've been called to fundamentally change the way we think. The life of the mind. Most do not arrive at this kind of worldview through philosophical discourse, but absorb it or breathe the air as various influences shape our thinking. And that's why we have to be careful. because We have to sit back and go, huh, what have I absorbed without even paying attention? And I guarantee you we all have. We bumped up against this every day. Okay, 
Presuppositions, important word in this discussion. It's an often implicit assumption about the world or a background belief that one holds. Okay? This is important. I mean, you've heard me use this before, but pr people use presuppositions. They're pre-commitments. Th let me just tell you one. Right now, I have a presupposition that you understand what I'm saying. So I have a presupposition, fundamentally, my words have meaning. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm not even arguing with you about my words having meaning. I'm assuming you pretty guys pretty much know what I'm saying. And I may have overstated something or understated, but you guys pretty much know what I'm saying, right? That's, that's actually a presupposition, meaning I don't think about that. I just do it. And people do this all the time. And as we'll see as we go through here, what's really interesting in our culture is people use my presuppositions from my worldview to try to defend their view and tell me Christianity's wrong. But then I have to ask them, well, where do you get that idea in the first place? Just like I said, the slavery one's a big one for me. I'm like, why do you think it stopped? Because of, well, <laughs> you're borrowing capital from my worldview, man. Yay. <laughs> okay, it's often taken for granted when engaging in thought and discussion. All people have pre-commitments, beliefs, presuppositions. You know what, sometimes they're called biases. I actually have those. I'm not afraid to tell people. Nobody's neutral. That's another discussion we'll get into, but there's this idea. Well, there's this neutrality out there. You religious people, you're over here, but we're being neutral. No, you're not. There's nobody neutral. I'm not neutral. I'm not neutral. I'm coming to the table with pre-commitments that I believe, and every one of us is, and that's the thing we need to talk to. We don't need to be freaked out and say, oh, yeah, when somebody makes that claim, I'm going to go, you do too, man. Like, welcome to the club. <laughs> we just need to identify it, expose it, show it. We should develop critical thinking, reflecting on our presuppositions and how they influence the beliefs we accept. Here's an interesting quote I like. All men approach the pursuit of truth or science with rational pre-commitments and personal biases. The wise man recognizes this and the honest man admits it. A rational pre-commitment to Christ is true and it provides the necessary, listen, pre-essentials to account for knowledge. And I've touched on that in our classes over the last weeks. I probably won't be able to keep doing it. You just kind of have to think about it. But... To even have knowledge in my world, I always use the law of non-contradiction with you, which is, means if I say this, I don't mean this. Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God exists. He's actually there, like he's there. There's something there, and then the opposite is he's not there. But how do you start that conversation if there is nothing there? Think about this. When people say nothing, no thing, how do you get something from nothing? How would you ever... I'm not talking about black. I'm not talking about darkness. I'm talking about nothing. And people want to think out of nothing we ended up with all of this. It doesn't make any sense. And so the very fact that you're using logical thought means my worldview works. Yours doesn't. See what I mean? You're using logical thought to try to get... I hope that makes some sense. Again, that's one of those things you've got to just think about it and ponder it, but it is pretty, it's pretty cool. Okay. Apologetics, you've heard this before. I'd love to get into 1 Peter 3 with you. It uses the word apologetics, but it's really there. The key in that passage is that you set up Jesus Christ as Lord. It's the very thing I'm talking about. If you start with God, that's actually what that's saying. It's not saying go out and learn all the philosophical arguments and have debates with everybody. It's technically not actually saying that. It's used that way. We kind of throw that around. But technically, in the whole context, if you were to do an expository preaching of that passage, it's saying don't go borrow from other worldviews. Don't go borrow from the... Uh, from, you know, other people. Set up Jesus as Lord. He's the Lord God. That's, that is your defense. The thing I'm telling you, if God is God, it sets up a whole bunch of stuff. Okay? So, second century apologists, 
sought to give the authorities rationalist justification for Christianity. And I think I've said that in here before. Part of that apologetic was, hey, your best citizens are your Christians. Why are you dogging them? That was part of the defense. Like, why are you after these guys? Why are you persecuting these guys? They're your best people. Um, they gave a rational explanation, a defense of Christianity to the unbelieving society. They typically were Christian. This is interesting. I was telling some guys this last week when you look at the history of this. They're typically Christian converts from a pagan background. I just find it interesting. They came from a pagan background, come to faith in Christ, and they kind of want to go back out in the pagan background and influence those people towards Christ. And you'll see why that's important here in a minute. They often use philosophy and natural theology to defend against the external threat of persecution of the church. They're using forms of thought. Now here's an interesting quote that I just love. I'm going to read it to you. I know it's probably too small to see back there. Clement of Alexandria, 2nd century. This is a, a quote. Uh, I put, quoted this from a his, uh, church history book. I really liked how he, he understood Clement. He said, Clement was versed not only in the Holy Scriptures, but also in the knowledge of the time. He understood the questions and problems of the young people. Clement had to enter their world, disentangle their conceptions, and lead them slowly from error to the true knowledge of Christianity. His purpose was not primarily theological, but pastoral. See, he had heart for these people that were lost and confused. He aimed to win not arguments. We've been talking about that through the whole thing. He didn't want to win arguments. It wasn't like, I'm right and you're all wrong. He aimed to win not arguments, but men to Christ. That was the goal. It was a risky venture. The church had reason to be afraid of pagan thought, right? It was not easy to disengage the pagan values and religious myths running through their educational literature. The Christian convert often faced a choice between clever, eloquently defended heresy or a dull, narrow-minded orthodoxy. Did you guys get that? The Christian convert often was faced with some eloquent thing that was, looked like it was juggling balls, it was incredibly smart, but it was wrong. Or something that was so dull and, well, we don't think about those things, we don't want to engage those discussions, the Bible says that's it, that they, Clement was after something else. He was determined to offer a third possibility, that the Bible teaches me how to think. Don't just throw my brain out the window. That's his whole point. And if you learn how to think, you can engage a culture. You can engage these people. And again, that's what Paul did. He knew what these people were thinking. Make sense? So, this is what these apologists were doing. Then there was another group called the Plemicists, the Plemics. We could look at a bunch of verses on this. We'll look at some later. But this was a rigorous debate or dispute for truth. It's what you see with, you know, Paul telling Timothy about false teaching coming in. It's interesting. Second century Plemicists sought to defend the church from the false teachings coming into the church. So technically, there were actually two groups. We kind of throw it all together and we talk about apologetics currently, kind of current vernacular, but there were actually two different groups. There were the apologists who were thinking out there, and there were the polemicists thinking about in here. And it's interesting, they tended, this is what I found interesting, the polemicists tended to have a background in Christian culture and were typically concerned with peace and purity of the church, both in theology and polity. The point being is that most of the polemicists grew up in the church. They had to come to faith in Christ. They, they, they were regenerated. But now, it's just interesting how God works this way. It's like the guy that comes from the pagan world wants to go back to the pagan world and reach him. The guy that grew up in the church is concerned with what's going on in the church. Just kind of, it's just an interesting observation. And then what's interesting is the one thing you want to catch is these polemics, these polemicists. They were biblical theological scholars. 
And I want to emphasize that's why I put capital letter there. They're scholars. This isn't just everyday people. They're scholars. Wesley used to say, the man that leads the church in these kinds of discussions, he had a whole list. I forget what it was, but it was geography, geology, biology. You should be able to ask him a question in any of those fields, and he should know a little bit about it. But then further, he said, you should be able to open your Bible, open up the Old Testament, point to a verse, and he should be able to tell you what that is in Hebrew and tell you what it fits and gives you the expository, exegetical reality of that verse. And you should be able to do the same thing with the New Testament and the Greek. And if you can't, you shouldn't be doing this in the ministry. What a standard Wesley had. Now, we can debate the standard. My point is, is that this isn't just everybody, every day. This is, these are scholars. These are people who are, and praise God, we contribute our funds in large degree, if you think about it, so guys like J.D. and Stephen can go sit behind closed doors and spend 8, 16, 20, 40 hours thinking about these things. It's what you got to have. This isn't just, oh, I watched three YouTubes and read a little book and now I know what everybody else is wrong. <laughs> it's people who thought about this stuff, okay? Polemics. Now, <clears throat> we see this throughout the scripture. Think of Apostle Paul. He's telling Timothy, remain on in Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines in order to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. I'm talking about people in the church, which give rise to use of speculation and rather than advance the plan of God. Well, they're neat thoughts, let's talk about them, but they don't advance the plan of God. They just, they're over here in left field and somebody probably should take the time to think about them, but he's saying, Timothy, these people are all wrapped up in the wrong things. They're major and unminers. Some people have strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be <laughs> teachers of the law, see? They think they're teachers of the law. <laughs> Even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You ever read that? That's Paul. He's telling Timothy that. Uh, Paul again. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce, all they do is produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged. We blow all that sometimes, by the way, you know. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, right? and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held, having been held captive by him to do his will. See? Paul's talking about polemics in the church. There's stuff in there. There's people talking about stuff. It's okay, but it's really not the big thing. And they're getting mixed up, and they're confusing it. Go there, correct them. Do it gently. Do it carefully, but they need to be corrected. See, that's polemics. Peter did the same thing, which is really interesting. He's talking about Paul's writings at the end of 2 Peter. He says, as also in all of his letters, Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which there are some things that are hard to understand. Peter's literally saying some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Yep. You got to work. You got to study. You got to dig. You got to think, what's he saying? Which, and look what happens, these more difficult things, the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. They're taking these difficult things, and again, I, I think of this, the cults are like this, by the way, they'll take some obscure verse that you really got to work through, and they'll make it a major thing. Mormons do this, Jehovah's Witnesses do it, and they take the obscure ones and, and say, okay, wait a minute, I got 10 that are clear, <laughs> and you got this one that's obscure, the 10 probably should be used to interpret the unclear, not the unclear to rephrase the 10. Does that make sense? That's, that's what he's talking about here. It happens all the time. Okay, so now, building our worldview. And by the way, I, I, I assumed I would run out of time, so we'll just go where we can, and wherever we leave off, we leave off. Okay, so as we build a real world, uh, a worldview, 
I'm always emphasizing this reality that we live in a real world. Okay, I want you to catch that. Romans 1, 18 through 20, right? Things are evident within people. You guys know this passage? I, I, should, I don't think I, let me see here. I don't think I put it in here. Yeah, let me go back here. I want to read this. Romans 1, 18, with, I mean, the whole, the whole section passage is incredible, right? But, um, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness, righteousness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That means they hold the truth down. It's like trying to hold down a spring in unrighteousness because that which is known about God, listen, is evident within them. God has put his fingerprints in the heart of every human being. They know. They know. There's, there's things they know, there's things they don't know. We could discuss that. But the point is, evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. We live in a culture that say people commit suicide because of sexual deviancy because they feel guilty. You're putting shame on them. You're putting guilt on them. And I always want to say, do you know why they feel guilty? Because they're guilty. They know. It's not because somebody's saying it. It's because they know. And we all know. We all know. That's why we run and hide from God. Everybody knows. We all know. God put it there. Okay? So we live in a real world. We have to understand that. It's a reality for everyone. You don't get out of it. And there's four realities that are quickly, as we start thinking kind of philosophically, how we make sense of this stuff, that are true for every person. One is something actually exists. I think it sounds so simple. It's not an illusion. There's people in the world that think it's an illusion, by the way. But my guess is, as I've asked some young guys to do, I've taken a young guy one time and put him out in the middle of the highway and said, okay, you're going to stand here and tell me everything's an illusion as those cars are coming at you, right? Nobody lives that way. We live as though something actually exists. We all live, I've been sharing this with you, law of non-contradiction, antithesis, if this, then not that. We think our brains actually think that way. If I'm saying this, all of you know I'm not saying the opposite. That's, that's real for everybody. And again, that's why I'm always camping on that with the bigger philosophical guys going, you know, you do this every day. Where do you get that? How about faith, trust? We all live with that. Every human being trusts. I have to. There's things I can't know, and you just trust it is. You trust it. If I walk out the door today, I trust there's oxygen out there. That sounds so simple. How do you know? Have you done the science experiment? Do you know the content? Do you know the percentages? Have you put it all on a table? No, you just kind of... I get in a jet plane. I flew a few weeks ago. I just, you know, I don't know anything about aerospace engineering, but when I can tell, things probably going to carry me, right? Mixed in there is reason. I'm thinking rational thoughts. If things on fire, I'm not going to get in a plane. But generally speaking, I go, oh, I'm going to trust it. We all live this way. Every human being does. It's not just the religious guy. Okay? Everybody does this. And we all live as though there's final foundational premises for everything there's objective absolutes. The term would say, I believe in absolutes, and people, oh, you know, get all freaked out. But the, fundamentally, we all do. We all believe there's, like, words have meaning. I'm talking to you with words, it's, it's almost crazy to me. You'll hear people say, words have no meaning, right? I, I use that a lot. But, like, well, didn't you just use words to tell me words have no meaning? Like, you obviously believe words have some, some meaning, <laughs> right? So there's this real world we live in. We're all locked up in it. And every person, Christian, non-Christian, Religious, non-religious, has to live in that world. And then, there's basic questions when we think about worldview. We're being a little technical here. Not, it's not that hard. But there's these f- 
fundamental questions you have to think through. If you were to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to build a worldview. I'm going to be really intentional about it. I start asking these questions. What is ultimate reality? What is a human being? By the way, we'll get into this. This is fascinating. If some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Matt Walsh, he's been doing this. He did this little documentary, What is a Woman? Maybe some of you know about that. If you haven't, it'd be interesting for you to watch it. It's very intriguing. But he's realized, and I wondered where they would go here. And he is now. He, I just saw it this week. I don't know much about Okay, first of all, I don't know much about Matt Walsh. I'm just being honest with you. He's talking about some cool stuff. I think he might be Roman Catholic. I don't know if anybody could tell me. I don't even know. Does that sound right? Yeah. So, so my point is, I don't know everything the guy believes. I just know he's done some cool things. So he's got to the point, he realizes now, it's not even what is a woman. What's a person? What's it mean to be a human person is actually more fundamental than what's a woman. And if you don't get that right, you can't get what's a woman right. Think about it. One thing builds on the other. What's a human being? Origins, where we come from. Destiny, where are we going? Dignity. Why do we treat human beings with dignity? Why, when I drive down the road, if I see a, a person laying in the ditch, I would call 911. If I see a raccoon or a possum, I don't. Sounds kind of brash, but think about it. We all know human beings are different. We all treat human beings different. And it's not just survival of the fittest. It's not because, well, it's a fellow species, and I have a lot of desire to preserve the species. No, no, no. I actually think different about human beings than I do everything else. And at the same time, there's this incredible dignity human beings. Why are we so cruel? Why do we do awful things? Now, you guys know really simply in this room, you'd say, oh, it's this thing called sin. Right? That's our worldview. A lot of the worldview doesn't have that. Okay? Um, how can we know anything at all? How can I know anything at all? Maybe I'm a pebble on a beach and I think I'm a person talking to you. Maybe I'm locked up in a matrix, if anybody knows that. <laughs> And I'm really not a real person living. I'm just living in some fantasy mind thing somewhere. How do I know? How do you know? Right and wrong, morality. How do you know what's right and wrong? Gets back to the issue of justice, right and wrong. Okay? Meaning and purpose. What's my meaning and purpose? Why do, that's an interesting one in itself. Why do humans always want to know about meaning and purpose? <laughs> I don't think animals are running around trying to figure that out. <laughs> right? These are worldview questions. You have to think these things through. And you, ha and you have to be rational, reasonable, and worldview. And by the way, I've got a couple minutes left, and I think I'm going to make it, and I'm going to share a couple quotes. When you do this, if we really want to be thinking people, first of all, this worldview needs to be coherent. It needs to make sense. Okay? Just really simple. It needs to be consistent. If I believe something over here, it needs to be consistent with something over here. Okay? This is sometimes we see the inconsistency. It's getting harder with the younger generation, Jared, your generation. Some people don't even care if it's consistent. <laughs> they don't even care. You can say, well, wait a minute. You say, you say this over here, but then you say this over here. Oh, they don't care. It's arbitrary, right? But technically, if I want to be a thinking person, it needs to be consistent. I need to have a consistent view across, across the line. Uh, comprehensive. I need to think about all these areas. And then correspondent, corresponding to a real world. Now, I want to I'm going to come back to presuppositions. I really would love to talk about that, but let me cover... Uh, one about the corresponding to the real world. I'm going to give you a couple quotes from Francis Schaeffer since we're at the end, and then we'll come back next week. Here's the big point I want you to get out of this quote. I, I put a lengthy quote here. I want you just to listen to it. Francis Schaeffer was all over this stuff trying to warn us. It's crazy. You go back in the 70s. He wasn't the only one, by the way. But you go back in the 70s and, say, push in 1980. They already saw coming what we are dealing with now. You go back and read those guys. They're like, this is where it's going. And they are, like, spot on. And it wasn't because they were, boop, 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 got some zap from God. It's because they thought about all this stuff. And they thought biblically. Now, listen to what he says. And he's talking about, say, just let's just say 1980. 
I find that many people who are evangelical and orthodox see truth just as true to the dogmas or to be true to what the Bible says. Nobody stands more for the full inspiration of Scripture than I. But this is not the end of truth as Christianity is presented, as the Bible presents itself. The truth of Christianity is that it is true to what is there. It fits the real world. Okay? You can carry out your intellectual discussion to the end of the discussion because Christianity is not only true to, the, to dogmas, it's not only true to what God has said in the Bible, but it's also true to what is there. When the evangelical catches that, when evangelicalism catches that, we may have our revolution. We may have our reformation. When we realize that what we're talking about actually works. When I say a male and a female come together and produce life, it actually fits the real world. Think about it. These other things don't fit the real world. An organ of life and an organ of death do not work. Think about it. Our, what God has given us, it fits a real world. It's in concert with a real world. We need to understand it. We will begin to have something beautiful and alive, something which will have a force in our poor, lost world. This is what truth is from the Christian viewpoint as God sets forth in the Scripture. Notice we must have the full biblical answer. We must not reduce Christianity to some modern existential upper story theology, meaning this leap and an experience and let's all have fun with Jesus. Great, that's awesome. But that's not all Christianity is. This isn't just makes me feel better and I get fulfillment in my life. We need the full biblical position to have an answer to the basic philosophical problem of the existence of what is. How do I explain this world? We need the full biblical content concerning God, that he is the infinite personal God in the starting place. And I'll come back to that next week, but everybody has to have a starting place where they start every discussion they have. Most people don't think it through. And I'll just tip my hand to you. As the Christian, my starting place is God actually exists. Not the name, not the concept, God. My God actually exists, y'all. And it sets up the whole thing. The world thinks you start with man and man's reason. You start there, you're going to end up in a completely different place. And that's what you're seeing in our culture right now. Look what's happening. The wheels are coming off, right? We can't even define a man and a woman. Because we started at a completely different place. That's what Schaefer's saying. We've got to get this. So you can tell I get kind of passionate about that. We're done, 1017. Time to worship. Let's enjoy communion today. It's going to be awesome. Remember what we've been given. All right, blessings. We'll be back next week and pick it up.